grace, mercy, and peace to you, church. If you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. I'm going to pivot off of Robin's words and cut my sermon down to one point. (laughs) Trust Jesus. God's people said amen. Well, I was thankful for the Bible study this morning because uh, I told Brandon that um, I'm just going to have to say the same thing he said in Bible study, just with different words. So uh, a little bit of a challenge before me. Um, The topic of the sermon this morning is the new birth. John chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15. It's a very difficult text if you've ever tried to to teach this or preach this. But uh, I would ask you one more time to pray with me. I need the Lord's help. So let's bow in prayer one more time. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. We are debtors to mercy alone, and we are beggars for your mercy this morning, especially the preacher. Lord, I pray that you would save the lost this morning. Save those who are fooled this morning. Comfort the found, Lord. Strengthen the preacher, and above all these things, Lord, glorify your name. In Christ's name I ask, amen. Well, have you ever tried to describe color to a blind person? It may, at first blush, kind of seem like an easy task. We're so used to color that we often think about them without realizing the amazing things going on with our eyes, with our brain. But as you begin to think about how to describe color to a blind person, the, the task proves to be a little more difficult. How would you describe primary colors? Red. Some people would say you would describe red as an emotion, anger, or love, or they would describe it as warmth. What about the color blue? Coolness. Calm. What about yellow? Sunny, acidic, something like that? Would you describe them using temperature, emotion, experiences? The difficulty in describing color to a blind person is amplified once you begin to mix those colors. What about those things like periwinkle, chartreuse? Sea foam. Every lady in the room is like, I know exactly what that is. Guys are like, it's purple. (laughs) I don't know a difference. How would you describe those things? The more fine-tuned colors. Describing color to someone who lacks the faculty suited to perceive color is an impossible task. A whole nation of blind men who gathered together and for their entire lives discussed color would be no closer to understanding color at the end of their lives as when they began. Whatever they know of color is a borrowed knowledge. The beauty of a rainbow is borrowed knowledge. The warm blush of a first kiss is borrowed knowledge. The fresh and orderly sense of pressed white linen sheets is borrowed knowledge. What about the power of an orange and purple and blue sunset? For a blind person to experience the world of sight in any real sense, any any real sense beyond hearsay, there must be a great change that happens in that person's life. And you know what that change has to be. They must have eyes to see. They must have eyes to see. Now, if there's any spiritual connection to what I've just said, With this analogy, it's that spiritually dead men cannot see. They are blind to spiritual truths. They must be given eyes. A change must be wrought in them so radical that our text describes it as new birth. So this is the subject of our text, one of new birth, and it is a very sobering topic. One writer says this, a man may be ignorant of many things in religion and yet be saved, but to be ignorant of the matters handled in this chapter, John chapter 3, is to be on the broad road 
which leads to destruction. We can debate end times prophecy till we're blue in the face. We can talk about tongues and miracles and signs all we want, and we can be wrong about them and still go to heaven. But you get this wrong, you get the new birth wrong, and you get everything wrong. So we're going to make some discoveries here in John chapter 3. This is the, the locus classicus, the classic place for the subject, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, and it's the, the famous encounter of Jesus with Nicodemus, and it's a well-worn place in Christian theology. And so let's read the text together, and we'll cover the text in five points. Sorry, Robin. Beginning in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except who, he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes on him may have eternal life. Well, we'll discover our text on the new birth in five points this morning. First, we're going to see that the new birth is a necessary birth. The new birth is a necessary birth. Secondly, we'll see the new birth is a supernatural birth. Third, the new birth is a sovereign birth. Fourth, the new birth is a big theological word here, monergistic birth. We'll get to that. We'll unpack that. And fifthly, the new birth is a transforming birth. So the context of our passage in John 3 comes uh, in the first Passover in John chapter 2. The wedding at Cana had taken place, and after this, Jesus goes down to Capernaum and stays a few days. And after that, he, he goes up to Jerusalem into the temple during the Passover of the Jews. And John, John records three Passovers in the life of Christ. During this first Passover, Jesus cleanses the temple of the money changers. And he's challenged by the Pharisees to show them a sign to confirm that he had authority to do such things. And Jesus replies, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, typical of blind men, the Pharisees completely missed the point. At the end of John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, Jesus says this, or John says this of Jesus. But as Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. This is the more close context of our passage concerning Nicodemus and the new birth. 
Jesus saw the heart. He saw the external reaction of the signs he performed, but he knew their fake faith. The fact is startling. He did not entrust himself to them. The text says it. Because he knew that that they did not belong to him. Having weighed their hearts as only the Lord can, he found them wanting. Now, there's a connecting word here in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, that brings us face to face with our subject, Nicodemus. The text says in 3.1, but there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, this is a connecting word. It's an adversative. It's an opposing word to the previous context. It sets Nicodemus in the context of those who saw the signs and inquired of the Lord. But the rest of the interaction presents for us a man who, at best, seems interested in the signs, but not completely open to the truth. Think of it. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. There was a sense of embarrassment in publicly associating with the Lord. Nicodemus feared men. He feared, their reputation. He feared his reputation being lost. He was among the rank of scholars, a dignitary, a luminary in the culture. But open association with Jesus was was off limits. For the rest of the gospel, in John's gospel, whenever you read of Nicodemus, you read this description. The one who came to Jesus by night. This title is forever stamped on his character. Also, Nicodemus casually addresses Jesus as a teacher. You can see that in verse 2. Rabbi. He's on par with us as the Pharisees, but no better than us, and certainly not, not outside of our control. It was a collegial address. Rabbi was in no sense, at least at this point, an attitude of worship. Hiding kind of behind his colleagues, behind the Pharisees, maybe even displaying a little bit of nervousness, Nicodemus addresses the Lord. We know that you're a teacher, not a prophet, or the prophet, or even the teacher, but just a disappointing title. We know that you're a teacher. Nicodemus was not seeing Jesus clearly. But also think about this. Nicodemus came to Jesus in the context of the signs that he saw, not in light of the Christ he saw. Nicodemus did not dismiss the Lord's signs as being from Satan, as his other colleagues did. You can read about that in John 8. However, he did not understand anything he witnessed about those signs. Though he was a ruler of the Jews, a teacher of Israel, he didn't understand anything about what those signs meant what they meant to say about the Lord. He seems to be a very careful man, a very inquisitive man, an intelligent man, and an anxious man. But ultimately at this point, Nicodemus is an unregenerate man. He has not experienced the new birth. So Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, these facts kind of help us understand Jesus' response to Nicodemus, and it brings us to our first point. First point or fact about the new birth, it is a necessary birth. The new birth is a necessary birth. Jesus answers Nicodemus in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There was no formal question on the part of Nicodemus, or so it seems. Yet Jesus read through his statement and saw the question. He was reading Nicodemus rightly. He saw the heart. It's as if Nicodemus were saying something like this. Who are you really? You're a teacher from God, but is is that all? Jesus' reply cuts to the heart. Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He was challenging Nicodemus' sight 
of who Christ was. And he stresses his words by repeating himself, truly, truly. In other words, Nicodemus, these are marked words. Are you listening? This is truth untainted, Nicodemus. These words set the stage and function to draw your mind to pay closer attention to what is about to take place. Now, we know what it's like to explain important things to those who are merely just listening as if they're thinking of something else. All of us have children. Most of us have children in here. We've experienced that. Jesus is saying this to awaken Nicodemus. Jesus realized that there was no use in throwing the seed of the gospel on ground that had not been prepared. Nicodemus needed to give his undivided attention. Jesus says this, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here we meet with the fact that the new birth is necessary. Because of the fall of man, because of sin and all of the consequences that follow, mankind must be changed. Man is dead in sin, hostile to God, and therefore new birth is necessary in light of sin. In light of this radical nature of the fall, Jesus says, unless. Unless something happens, Nicodemus, you will never see the kingdom of God. There must be a circumstance that changes in your life for you to have hope of eternal life. There's no hope of life without the condition of new birth. Nicodemus and his Jewishness It wouldn't save him. Paul says in Galatians 6.15, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Religion would not contribute anything to Nicodemus. Bloodline would not contribute anything to Nicodemus. Something radical must take place. And Jesus says it, unless... One is born again. He elaborates on this in verse 5 when he speaks of being born of water and the Spirit to explain this more plainly to Nicodemus. There must be an inward change, a cleansing, a renewing work of the Holy Spirit. Just as the body is cleansed with water, so the soul must be purified by God. The unregenerate man is Impure. He's spiritually dead. He must be washed and made alive. Now, if a man is not born again, Jesus' words are plain. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Elsewhere in this encounter with Nicodemus, Jesus states that the man cannot enter the kingdom of God. In verse 5, without new birth, a man cannot see and enter the kingdom of God. Now, these terms, I think, are interchangeable terms. They don't mean anything different. Jesus is approaching the same truth from a different angle. When speaking of the kingdom of God here, Jesus does not simply mean heaven. He's not looking at Nicodemus and saying, unless you're born again, you can't go to heaven. That is certainly true, but that's not what he's getting at here. Jesus is speaking of something more immediate, something that has broken in on the scene of human history with the coming of the king. Jesus didn't say, unless a man is born again, he cannot see heaven. That is a true fact, but it is not the point. Eternal life, beloved, does not begin when we die. Jesus was pressing in on Nicodemus to consider the state of his soul at that very moment. The kingdom of God was not a future hope alone, but a present reality to be experienced now by new birth. In this way, Jesus is speaking to all men, not just Nicodemus. Unless you were born again, you can not only participate, you cannot participate in kingdom life now and have communion with God, but a man has no hope of living in the future kingdom once it is consummated at the Lord's second return. 
You must be born again. Otherwise, Jesus is saying you are an alien to this kingdom. That is a plain truth. Now, all of this is a, is a rebuke to Nicodemus. Jesus cares nothing really about what Nicodemus perceives him to be or even that his supposed learning was going to merit him something. So long as Nicodemus remained in darkness, Jesus was concerned about his soul. He, he didn't entertain the niceties of Nicodemus. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. But Nicodemus shows his ignorance in this reply. As Jesus unfolds the new birth in the kingdom of God, Nicodemus replies, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Nicodemus could, more than likely, dispute the finer matters of the law. He was a Pharisee. But he completely missed the weightier matters altogether. He missed the proverbial forest for the trees. Is it so with you? Can you debate the finer matters of the law? Are you missing the forest for the trees? He devoted himself to subtleties, yet he completely missed the chief doctrine without which no man can lay claim to the kingdom of God. New birth is necessary, not only for a man to experience communion with God, but also to understand the most basic spiritual matters of God. One theologian says it this way, the necessity of the new birth is set in contrast to a man of the caliber of Nicodemus. Certainly a teacher of Israel, a Pharisee, didn't need such a radical change. If anyone ate, slept, and breathed the law, it was Nicodemus. Certainly it was not necessary for him. Well, indeed it was. The contrast in this interaction is proof. Nicodemus had knowledge. Nicodemus had gifts. Nicodemus had works. But did he have the grace of new birth? I think his answer is proof. The Apostle Paul states it clearly in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Well, the plain fact stands on the surface of the text. You must be born again. Sin has ruined us. You don't need reform. You don't need manners. You need, we need, every soul needs one great thing. That is new birth. The scripture is plain, beloved. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. Therefore, do not marvel at these words. You must be born again. So we see, first of all, that the new birth is a necessary birth, and it's necessary because of sin. Secondly, the new birth is a supernatural birth. Look at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit, spirit. This is the supernatural nature of the new birth. Now, there are two births mentioned here, one from the flesh, the other from the spirit. Like begets like. Dogs make more dogs. Humans make more humans. The flesh only births the flesh, and the spirit only births the spirit. Just as the flesh births people who belong to the earth, the spirit births people who belong to the kingdom of God. The new birth is a birth by the Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural birth. It does not come from the flesh or any effort connected to it. That which, born, which is born of the spirit is spirit. 
But compounding this fact is an interesting word in verse 3. If you look at verse 3 again, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again. Now this word again can also mean again, obviously, in the translation, but some of your texts say born from above. Some of your translations bring that out. Unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This word is used elsewhere in the New Testament, John 3.31. He who comes from above is above all. John 19.11, when Jesus spoke to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from anothane, above. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is anothane, from above. And if you read 1 John, universally John speaks of having been born of God. So it's, the, it's plain that the source of your new birth, of a person's new birth, is from above the natural realm. It is supernatural. It has nothing to do with this world. It's from above. Being born again is being born of God, who is above. Again, these truths may seem plain to you, but what is Nicodemus' response? How can these things be? I don't understand them. The dialogue, interestingly, turns into a monologue. That was the last question Nicodemus asked. He began with an assertion. We know you've come from God. Then he moves to two lengthy questions. And by the end of it, he is perplexed to the point of silence. How can these things be? Mark this fact, beloved. The new birth is a supernatural birth. It is being born from above. Thirdly, new birth is a sovereign birth. New birth is a sovereign birth. The verb born in verse 6, look at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That verb is a verb that indicates parental prerogatives and power for both begetting from the father in a natural sense and bringing forth in birth from the mother. It's a verb of parental prerogatives. It's a passive verb, however, which means this. Whatever's being done in this birth is not being done by you. It's being done by another. The begetting and bringing forth in new birth is from another. You did not conceive yourself naturally, nor did you conceive yourself spiritually. You did not birth yourself naturally, nor do you birth yourself spiritually. It is from God. John 1.13 says this, that we are born of God. Not from anything else we've done. James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Whose will? Of his own will, he brought us forth. God's sovereign will. 1 Peter 1.3 states that it was God alone who caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, the fact of this sovereign nature of the new birth can also be seen when Jesus describes the will of the wind and the will of the Spirit. Look at verse 8. So he says in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind blows wherever it wants, beloved. It is sovereign to go here and there, and no man can control it. You cannot direct it, and so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
The work of God is incomprehensible to the mind of man. We do not know where the Spirit comes from or where the Spirit goes. Solomon captured this in Ecclesiastes 11.5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, natural analogy, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. You hear it sound, Jesus says, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. The point is this. New birth by the Spirit of God, like the wind, is sovereign, free from all encumbrance, and it is incomprehensible. It is sovereign to go wherever it pleases. You cannot tell it, uh, you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes, but you can see its effects. Now, maybe you've, uh, maybe you've seen those ridiculous church signs, revival, 7 p.m., I remember when I became a Christian, I, I, I remember looking at those signs thinking, how ridiculous is that? A man is trying to grab the Holy Spirit and rein him in like a dog on a chain to say, meet God tonight at 7 p.m. I think it's ridiculous to think that a man has any part in control of the Spirit. God is not a dog on a chain, beloved. Any God like that is not the holy, free God of Scripture. He's not the sovereign God of the universe. The one true living God is free. A man can no more control and predict the spirit than he can the wind. So the plain fact stands. If men are not totally depraved, the sovereign working of God is not necessary. If men are not totally dead in sin, then the sovereign working of God is not necessary. But men are dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. It doesn't say that, that they're, it doesn't say they're, they're alive and just sick and need some medicine, need a little healing, a little TLC. The scripture says they are dead, dead in their soul and must be raised to life. Now, when's the last time a dead man raised himself to life? By his own power. Uh, the answer would be never. The new birth is and must be a sovereign birth. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and so it is with the Spirit. Well, fourthly, new birth is a monergistic birth. That may be a very strange word to some of you. We'll explain it. But the new birth is a monergistic birth. Mono, one. Erg, energy, or power. Jesus repeatedly tells Nicodemus that the new birth is the Spirit's work alone. Alone. If a man is born again, he is born of the Spirit and nothing else. You can see that in verses 5 through 7. Because new birth is a sovereign work of God as we saw previously, it's also birthed by a single power, a single power. It is God alone working. That's what we mean by monergistic instead of synergistic. You are not linking arms with God to make yourself alive in new birth. Man is completely and wholly passive in new birth. There is no cooperation Man is not working with God any more than man worked with God in his natural birth. Man is not working with God in new creation any, man, any more than man worked with God in the original creation. Were you there when he made the stars? When he breathed out galaxies? When he created the balance and order of all things? Were you there giving God advice? Were you there cooperating with the Almighty? No, you weren't. You were no help at all. Jesus says later in John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. And if you had any question about whether or not you were a help to God, listen to the rest of the verse. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. 
The text is plain. What help did you offer God in new birth? You were a dead man. The flesh is no help at all. A little help? Maybe just a smidge? A thousand times no. The flesh is no help at all. The Apostle Paul reasons this way with the Corinthians because they were losing sight of a lot of things. They were very fleshly as a church. And one of the things they began to do is compare themselves to one another. And Paul asked this question, and this gets to the sovereignty of God's grace and new birth in your life. He asked them this question and asked you the same. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, Paul is asking, what do you have from God in the Christian life that you did not receive from him? You somehow birthed yourself in cooperation with God, and now you create your own gifts by the uh, cooperating work of the Holy Spirit? No. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast? As you look around this room, who made you to differ from your neighbor? Are you better than them? Maybe you don't believe God's sovereignty and salvation. Are you better than the guy beside you? You have it all together? You were able to answer the questions rightly, pass the moral test, make the right choice? Answer this question before you leave. What do you have that you did not receive? If the answer is nothing, then you're not far from the kingdom of God. And you're probably not far from being a Calvinist. (laughs) What made you to differ from the lost man, beloved? Not your effort, not your power, not your intelligence, not your moral fortitude. Proof that God calls fools standing before you right here, right now. It was the single power of God working in you to bring about life. That's it. God alone. New birth is a monergistic birth. Well, finally, fifth point. New birth is a transforming birth. Now, this, I think, is the ultimate point behind what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus concerning the new birth. We've seen that new birth is necessary because of sin. It's supernatural because it's from above. It is sovereign and monergistic because God alone is doing it, and God alone can raise dead men. But finally, we have to see that new birth is a transforming birth. In the words of one... It is a revolution that takes place at the center of man's moral and spiritual being. Sin and pollution are dethroned in the citadel of man's being, and righteousness takes its place. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, There is a new foundation laid in the nature of the soul for a new kind of exercise. Faith. Being a revolution of the soul, the transforming nature of this new birth touches the whole man. Every faculty of your soul is touched by the new birth. And it's so because sin has touched every part of you. At its core, this transformation is a mind and heart change. A man who has been born again is changed in his mind to understand the gospel. He's given the mind of Christ. You've been given the mind of Christ. His heart is changed to believe the gospel by faith. New birth with a new heart produces the ability to believe. Regeneration precedes faith. Dead men have no faith, beloved. Only a man who is living and born again by God can exercise belief, faith in Christ, to trust him, to embrace him freely. With this, his will, 
his affections, his desires are changed, enabling him to walk with God and walk in a way pleasing to God. Formerly, you were a hater of God. Now you're a lover of God. Formerly, God was boring. But now he's your chief delight. Formerly, you were dead in sin. Now you are alive to righteousness. Formerly, you walked in darkness. And now, beloved, you have light. As Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, finish the verse, he is a new creature. That is a new species fit for a new world. The commencement of a state of being fit for a new world. The old has passed away. The new birth makes us unlike who we were. Old plans, old opinions, old desires, old affections, old principles in our heart have passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this revolution of the soul is permanent, beloved. It's permanent. And it cannot be undone. A man is born again into a permanent state of existence. There is growth. There is maturity. But ceasing to be a new creature, he cannot. There never is. The earthly analogy of birth ought to be enough for us to understand this. Once conceived, once born, the humanity you possess is yours forever. You cannot cease to be what you are. Now, speaking of the permanence of new birth, Jesus later in John says this. John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Later, Jesus says in John 10, verses 27 through 30, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. To be in the family of God by supernatural, sovereign, monergistic birth is to be in his family forever. Forever, beloved. If you are born of him, you are kept by him. Romans eleven twenty nine is clear. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot be taken back. What God commits to do, God does. The transformation of the new birth is necessary for this new world, and we await that world. Charles Hodge says this, The inward spiritual change in every believer is the type and necessary condition of this great cosmic change. We await a new heavens and a new earth, and only those who have new hearts new minds, new birth can experience these things. J.C. Ryle says this, this mighty change we must above all remember is a thing without which we cannot go to heaven and could not enjoy heaven if we went there. Heaven would be hell to the unconverted. God is there and it's the one thing they're running from all their life. Without new birth, you would hate heaven. You would hate heaven because God is there. God is heaven to the believer. Well, we see the transformational nature of new birth. I want to leave you with a few observations as we close our time together. First of all, I want you to see the absurd conclusions that blind men come to concerning spiritual truths. The absurd conclusions of blind men concerning spiritual truths. I am sure that Nicodemus had a vocabulary that could fool many of us. 
He was a conversant man. He was a knowledgeable man. He was a man who had a high sophistication of the things of religion, or so he thought. But he needed new birth. There are many who can speak the language of Zion, who have many ideas about spiritual truths, who have read many books, listened to many sermons, and have many natural ideas about Christianity. Yet they are as distant from truly knowing the Lord as a blind man is knowing is from knowing color. Are you one of those? Blind men talk about colors, but they've never experienced them. Are you this sort of man? Spurgeon said this, There is a close connection between affections and understanding. If we love evil, we cannot understand that which is good. If the heart is foul, the eye will be dim. Matthew 5, 8 is plain, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Nicodemus could not see because he needed a new heart. Second observation. Weakness must be welcomed and good beginnings must be encouraged. Where a man begins with Christ is not necessarily where he ends. Where a man begins with Christ is not necessarily where he ends. It is a beautiful thing, beloved, to see the tenderness of Christ here with Nicodemus. This man, who began in our chapter with absurdity, with ignorance, with blindness, cloaked in the shame of night, later finds himself in chapter 7 defending our Lord at noonday among the council of the Jews. Does our law judge a man before it hears him out? Nicodemus pushes back. And after our Lord's crucifixion, in John chapter 19, when Joseph of Arimathea comes to Pilate to get the body of Christ off the cross, we find these beautiful words. Nicodemus also pause there. Nicodemus also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Nicodemus went from being ashamed of associating with Christ to anointing him with extravagant amounts of myrrh. Enough for a hundred bodies, beloved. How this man began with Jesus was not how he ended. We have to encourage the weak. We have to be patient with those who are ignorant. God may raise up a Nicodemus in our midst. We have to welcome good beginnings and encourage them. Well, as we close, I want you to see that new birth is necessary because of the nature of sin. It is supernatural because it is from above. It is sovereign and monergistic because God alone does this. And it is transforming. It changes the whole man. But I would be amiss if I left here without asking you, how is it with you? How is it with you? Have you been born again? Do you know about Jesus or do you know Jesus? Has that great and mighty change happened in your life? Is your confession, Rabbi, I know you're a teacher come from God? Or do you know him? Or better yet, are you known by him? What acquaintance do you have with the Lord? Are you bearing the unmistakable characteristics of new birth? Has kingdom life begun in your soul? 
I'm not asking you, do you go to church? I'm not asking you, have you stamped your card at a Reformed Baptist church? I'm not asking you if you read your Bible or pray. I'm asking you that one great question. Have you been born again? If your heart's struck by these things and you don't yet know him, look at, look at verses 14 and 15. This is for you. This is for you. Look at verses 14 and 15. Grab a Bible in the pew and open it and look. Look here. If you don't know him, verse 14 and 15 is for you. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Lift up your eyes and look to Christ. The Son of Man must be lifted up. He must be crucified. That whoever looks to him will have eternal life. Look to Christ lifted up on the tree. Look to Christ, the sinless Son of God, suffering, crucified for sinners, pouring out his life's blood. Look to Christ, the resurrected one, exalted at the right hand of the majesty on high. You have nothing more to do then look to Christ. That's it. Look to him and believe. A day will come, as one theologian says, when those who were not born again will wish they had never been born at all. May the Lord have mercy on us. In Christ's name, let's pray. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would bless these plain words. As I've prayed many times this week, that you would open the eyes of those who don't know you. Would you, oh, Lord, give us courage to speak the truths to those who we know are lost? And will we be patient with them, Lord, that how they begin be not how they end? Lord, please save many this day. May you be glorified in all things. In Christ's name I ask. Amen.